Uh, this week we take a look at one of the pericope readings, and it is Jesus' first miracle, his wedding at Cana. And it reveals a couple things to us, not only Jesus' power, which is amazing, uh, but also the fact that he uses that power with compassion and humility for us because of his love for us. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, January 18th, 2014. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, next week, as you anticipated with our buttons, uh, we're going to, oh, there you can see them in action. You can see I'm a professional photographer, hiding the shadows and everything. I'm pretty good with Photoshop. The, um, here's our buttons, and that's leading to a series that we're starting next week, talking about why, um, why are we here, I mean, as a church. And each week we'll ask a question that people have asked me before, like, why do you worship, or why do you... Um, why should I even be in a grow group? Why should I be, you know, what, and whatever. So we'll cover that over a series of weeks, and I think you'll enjoy it. I tested the buttons out, so I got them on Wednesday. Do you feel the upgrade feature? Someone noticed the tactile feel. They're not shiny. This is, we spared no expense. It was a free upgrade. Um, so I tested these out, and I did get a lot of people saying, like, hey, what's the button about? That's what they asked me about. They didn't say, like, on a bigger scale. And I think you'll find each week, I mean, for me, if someone asks what church is about, I would say it's about community around God's word. To me, that's, what, that's why I go to church. It's not just to hear God's word. I could do that on my own if I wanted. I could go on the mountain and read God's word. Uh, but it's the sense of community and accountability and being picked up by you, and hopefully you're uplifted by the messages we hear from God's word. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. You can look forward to that. And uh, grow groups are not going to start next week, but the week after. So we've got a few options on that. You can sign up finally this week. And I'll just quick go through those just so um, you get a chance. The first one is, I think, I, I don't have my, I do have a bulletin just to make sure. Uh, the first one is at the Sillins. I think it says just in the Meadows area. Is that right? If you can double check with that. So Randy and Gloria Sillian are hosting the one, uh, this one. This one was last at Yvette's house. So if you're looking like which one do I sign up with, if you're in that group, that might be a good, good spot for you. That will probably be Thursdays, I think. We have Lent this uh, season, so we'll maybe try to avoid Wednesdays this year. Uh, during the spring. This is a shorter semester than usual. Sometimes it goes up to 10 or 11 weeks. This one's uh, just seven weeks, and we may even take off the, um, the week of Ash Wednesday to start that out. The second one is, if I look, that's in Parker. That The Watleys have agreed to host that one, which is pretty cool. And then the third one is going to be at John and Allie Witt's house. And then the fourth one is Bible Basics. If you're not part of our church and you're saying, hey, this is something I'd be interested in, know what this church teaches, that's the one you take. That's at my house, and hopefully that's like Tuesday. Because if it's Monday, Amy works w- late one night a week, and it's Monday, so it'd be, I'm not a great host, but she is. So you kind of want her to be there. It's more fun. So uh, that is what we got going on Grow Groups. You can sign up. Just use your Take Action card if you want. You can just put it in there and put it in the offering plate as it goes by. We are, uh, as I talked with the kids, talking about potential and uh, where does potential fit in. I showed them a picture I thought would be really easy of LeBron James. They don't know LeBron James. Maybe that's good that your kids don't know that. That's good. The, um, but we talk potential. Potential is, in fact, in every single relationship that you're in. So if you're in any kind of relationship, you've had a point where you say, this has potential. And usually we think of, uh, we're optimists in America, right? We, we think, potentially, this could be a good relationship, right? Maybe you're dating someone, you're like, potentially, this could be the one. Potentially, this could be the job that I really enjoy. Potentially, you know, it, we're always optimists, right? Potentially, my team could win games next year. You know, the, we're always optimists. That also goes the opposite way, right? You, you get in a, a relationship with someone and you're like, potentially, this could be a train wreck, right? Potentially, this could be an awful job. Potentially, this is going to cause friction and trouble and not be a good thing. So we go kind of both ways. And it's not just relationships, I think. If you watch movies, 
Have you seen movies that has potential to be really good? Uh, we just watched one last night. I heard all these rave reviews about, uh, what's that one, Boyhood, that took 12 years to film and everything like this, so it had the potential to be really good. I, uh, yeah, you, you can watch it, though. It's got the potential. It's got the potential to be really good. Um, so, it, but that's movies, right? Your sports teams, your, um, you go into the mall. Like, you just go into the shopping trip. That's part of the excitement, right? It has the potential that you're going to get something great. That's why I go to the garage sale at REI. It has potential to get things I didn't even know I needed until I showed up, right? This is, it has potential. And it, mostly, though, this works in relationships, so we said about work, you had a time where you had a relationship with someone. You said this, there was like an aha moment, like this is the person, or this is the school I want to go to, this is, where, this is the job, this is what I want to do with my life. For Jesus, that event happened, that were kind of this revealing to people, that happened at a wedding in Cana, so that's where we're going to be looking the thing with Jesus, though, is um, most people would not have recognized. We kind of talked that with the kids. They wouldn't have recognized Jesus as this figure that stands out. You can recognize that once in a while. You see someone that you're like, they stand above. And it, like King Saul, for example, it says he stood a foot taller than everybody else. So he stood out among normal people. You know how that works. Have you met people that are, uh, let's just say, so beautiful, you're like, wow. They're made, wow. Uh, have you ever seen someone that looks like an Adonis type person? You meet him and you're like, that person stands out. Um, I told you we went to the Renaissance Fair. I saw a guy who looked like Fabio who was like six foot seven. And he was like this wide. And I'm like, what in the, where did these jeans come from? Like this guy was just huge. And he, he was wearing like this Conan Vibrarian outfit. Um, I was not, he was. You know, I'm in jeans, he's in Conan the Barbarian outfit. So his sword was like this long. It was, it's unbelievable. So you see people that stand up like that. Would we describe Jesus as that? Like if you saw Jesus on the, the street or the roadway, do you think people said like, we got to just follow this. Something special is here. No. In fact, this is how they talk. So this is Jesus' disciples. Again, we're having trouble. So can you give me a click, Megan? Uh, so Philip and Andrew, they're becoming disciples of Jesus and, um, and Peter there was from the town Bethsaida. So Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law in whom the prophets also wrote. So this is a big deal, right? This is 1,500 years in the making. Like we, not 12 years for a movie. This is 1,500 years in the making. And he's like, here's the deal. It is Jesus, son of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And he says, Frank Town, can anything good come from there? He asked, right? It wasn't exactly Franktown, but he's saying, like, I should, that's probably too close to home because some of you know people in Franktown. How about Sterling? Have you guys ever been tricked? You're like, we need something to eat. You know, you're driving on 76 and you're hungry. You're going somewhere in Nebraska and you're like, let's stop at Sterling. First, they trick you because it says, like, McDonald's or something, and you have to drive two miles into Sterling, regretting the decision the whole time. And then you finally get into Sterling and you're like, why am I in this town? My friend went there, Pastor Spiegelberg. He, he, you guys know Pat, he's one of my best friends, so he calls, he's like, hey, I'm going to stop to eat somewhere. I'm like, don't stop in Sterling. He's like, but it's perfect timing. I'm like, don't stop in Sterling. So he stops in Sterling. He goes, Jamie got three cat calls from the oil workers. I mean, who cat calls anymore? Like, I can't even think of a situation. Have you ever gone downtown Castle Rock and people are like whistling? That three people did this to his wife at a McDonald's with four kids in tow. <clears throat> Sterling. 
can anything good come from there? So this is like this, they guessed Nazareth was about 200 people, which Sedalia is 208 people or 210 people. So it's like the size of Sedalia. This is not a big deal. And they're saying like, why? this is not New York. This is not Jerusalem. This is not where the kings come from. They're like, how is that possible? Not only that, we also have a prophecy. So there's a prophecy, and you're familiar with it, in Isaiah 53 that talks about the one who's going to be pierced for our transgressions. You've probably heard of this. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. Early on in 53, it kind of describes this Messiah who's going to come. And it doesn't say he's going to be like huge and buff and uh, all these amazing things. Instead, it says, um, did I do that or you do that? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. This is about 700 years before Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground, talking about the Messiah to come. Isaiah 53, 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, we don't know for sure what Jesus looked like, but it certainly seems that when people meet him, they're surprised at what he can do. And that's where we're at in um, this wedding that happened. So uh, if you can, next slide. I'm going to just put this down. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. So you've probably heard this before if you've ever heard a sermon about weddings. Are weddings a big deal in the Old Testament? Yes, they're a big deal. They celebrate for a week. We celebrate for like a day, and it costs us, what's the average wedding price? It's over $10,000, right? Everyone's looking at me like, are you crazy? Mine was under $10,000, so I guess the average wedding is above $10,000. So um, so the, this is a huge deal. It lasted a week. This is a giant celebration. All the relatives, I mean, if you're walking, it's one thing to fly somewhere, but if you're walking, it better be worth your trip. You know, like if I'm going to walk downtown, this better be worthwhile. So if I'm going to invite you, um, this, so they all come. It's like um, in Hawaii, if anyone knows anyone who's Hawaiian, and they, they have this naming ceremony, I think, when the child is one years old and they get a special Hawaiian name that's like 24 letters long. Our friends did that, and they said their sister spent $10,000 on this birthday party for a one-year-old. That's a big deal. And it, they said it lasts like a week. People just kind of come and go. They had a shave ice machine. I mean, naturally, what else would you have at, at a first birthday party? Um, they have all these things. It's a huge, huge deal. And all these people came. And um, this is in a culture of shame and honor. We don't have a culture like that. So in America, we're individualistic, which means we, we don't work. If you do something that offends your family, that's really not a huge thing in our culture. Other cultures, it's a much bigger deal. Does anyone know maybe someone from Japan? It's a big deal. Have you seen the movie A Good Lie? That movie was good. That had the potential to be good, and it was pretty good. So The Good Lie, these uh, men were from Sudan, and the one brother did something, Paul, and, and Amir, I think, is the other one, and he's saying, you have brought shame to our family, and that's all you can say. Has your parents ever said that to you? Well, you don't have to raise your hand at this point. <laughs> There's a, a, I was listening to the radio once, and this woman was telling a story about how at the funeral of her father, and I probably told you this already, the funeral of her father, she got really choked up because all the family's around, and they're talking, and she goes, yeah, there's this one time when she did something when she was a teenager, and she's sharing this story about how emotional it was, and her father took her side. Let's just say their last name is like the Millers, and he said, no single Miller has brought more shame to the Miller name than you have with this act. 
and she brought this up, and she's crying, and her older brothers and sisters die laughing. They're like, he did that to all of us. You know, like, they had no idea. Like, so he attempted to make this a shame and honor culture. So in the Middle East, this is a shame, honor culture. In Africa, it's a shame, honor culture. In America, we kind of go our own way. If you um, do something that embarrasses your parents, that doesn't mean anything to individuals or kids. They don't think of it as saying, like, I'm bringing shame to my, my family name. They just think individually, how does this matter? This is a shame and honor culture. You throw this big old party, and imagine you're at this wedding. It's this big old party. It's huge. Everyone's there. They run out of wine, which is a really big deal. I mean, a bigger deal than just like um, a, a tiny deal. This is a huge deal, and this is what Jesus does. It. If you could do the next slide. So when the wine was gone, this is in John chapter 2. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And we, we don't really know what this next statement means, so we'll just kind of gloss over it. It says, dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. This doesn't make sense. Um, maybe he's saying, like, my time to re- redeem the world hasn't come. My time to obviously not do anything, he's not saying it doesn't come now. Okay, now it does come. You know, that doesn't make sense. So I don't quite understand what that means. But he says, my time has not yet come, whatever that means. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone jars, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So kind of what's the takeaway here? We're going to say, okay, here's a miracle that happened in the past. The, the first thing is um, if, you, if you have a favorite food, I'm sure all of you have a favorite food, and you can think, and you have it on occasion, probably. I'm guessing. It's not like, uh, uh, for Tim Meyer, it's macaroni and cheese. He, he said, I could eat Kraft macaroni and cheese every single day. You know, that makes one of us in the whole entire building. So he, that's his favorite food. But you probably have a favorite food. You might be able to find a favorite restaurant where you could probably eat there every day. Can you think of one of those? I like the Cheesecake Factory. It's got a big enough menu. You know, it's like a booklet. I could come up with something to eat every day. A friend said he could eat at Chipotle every day. And I thought, hey, I think I could do that too. And then I got a stack of free Chipotle coupons. I could not eat Chipotle every day. We had Chipotle like three times a week for two months. And Yeah, so if, you, if I ever give you the option, which I do, like, hey, let's get lunch together, and you say Chipotle, inside I go, <laughs> hey, but I'll go because I, I love you and I'm willing to do whatever you want to do. So the... Um, so you find this favorite food, but if you have that food every day, it kind of gets a little bit old. And the same thing is true when you think of the Old Testament, you think of Jesus' time. When I was a kid, I would just think like miracles are just like popping out all over the place, right? Like you're just going down the street and like people are being healed and all this like is flying and all this thing is happening and like 5,000 people are getting food and, and water's turning into wine and all these cool things. In reality, the last time there's miracles recorded is like 700 years ago that I can think of. I mean, that's the last major time where there's actual miracles happening before Jesus, 700 years. So like 1,300 before Martin Luther is the last time there's a big deal with these miracles. And then suddenly Jesus comes on the scene. This guy who does not look especially extraordinary, and he bends the laws of nature. 
So if you can do the next slide and then the next one. Not only does he have the ability to do this, which what would be your reaction if you saw someone who could bend the laws of nature, like who could actually do real things? But his attitude with it as he does this amazing thing that obviously is God is an attitude of humility. He doesn't want anyone really to know. He doesn't say, hey, everyone gather around. I do this with my kids. So we went skiing this on uh, Friday. They had off. Most of them had off. And uh, so that made the third one have off. Um, so most of them had off. We went skiing, and I got these new twin-tip skis. If you ski, this is a big deal. And I'm built like an orangutan, so this is a big deal. So you're going to see this in action. I'm skiing, and I'm going, and I did one of these. You know, and I, I jumped, and I landed. I was pretty excited about it. My kids were excited. I think I showed you as many times as possible. It, and I was pretty excited about that. G- this is not doing that. That on film would look pathetic. Right? I mean, that would look like, yeah, Donkey Kong on sticks, just kind of spinning in the, a little bit. Jesus bends the laws of nature. He does something that they've never seen before. And, I, and they'd say, like, your mind would just be blown. And to say, I cannot imagine that this has just happened. But not only that, but he has a humility uh, attitude. If you want to hit the next one. He has this humble attitude that goes with it. He's not bragging to everybody. And if you can find, we all know people with ability. But if you can find someone who has ability and with that humility... You found something special. What does this mean as you take it home? Our Jesus, the one that they uh, was at this wedding, is the same God that we pray to. He's God. He can bend the laws of nature. When you talk about how much power does Jesus have, how much ability does he have, he can bend the laws of nature, he can speed them up. He can slow them down. He can reverse them all together. Your father's sick, he can heal him. He can fix every single situation that you've ever dreamed of. He has that kind of ability with it. And that's great. I mean, it's always great to know someone who has the power to fix something, right? And you all know someone who can, if you've got a problem at your house or a problem with your car, you all know someone who can fix it. There's a difference between knowing someone who can fix it and someone who wants to help you out. And I think that's the biggest takeaway we can take from this miracle. Not only does Jesus have the ability to do miraculous things, to change the world, and to do things we've never dreamed of and change the fabric of how the world functions, but he's uh, compassionate in a way that says, I want to help you out. How do we know that? What's this, what is this miracle? What, what is it? Like, really, if you had the ability to do anything you wanted, like raise the dead, feed 5,000 people, um, you do it, make a tsunami happen or make a tsunami stop. You could do anything you wanted. And this is like your big reveal to the world. Would you, what did he save? He didn't save people. He didn't make anyone better. I just found out my dad has glaucoma. And I mean, that would be cool. Like he just, he fixes it. Like, and that, that's done. I, that would be amazing. And I'd be forever grateful. Could that happen? Um, he didn't like raise someone from the dead. He didn't like the tsunami didn't hit. And then he didn't reverse everything. He fixes a reputation. That's it. This young couple in the middle of their wedding celebration runs out and about to face, uh, in a shame and honor culture, some shame. And Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to fix it. I think the big takeaway on this is we, we always look at Jesus as someone who has the ability. And I'm asking you in these next days and weeks and for the rest of your life, think of Jesus not only with ability, not only with humility, but he has compassion that says, I actually want to help you. You don't have to wait until you're sick enough to pray to Jesus. You don't have to wait until you're um, hurt enough 
broke enough. You don't have to wait until your life is crumbling enough and your marriage is bad enough or your relationship with your kids is broken enough. You don't have to wait until, you know, you're, you can't find a job enough and say, okay, now finally I can go to Jesus. Jesus says, I want to be there even for things that don't seem like a big deal to the rest of the world. Do you love your kids? Your kids have a problem. I mean, they, they lose a stuffed animal or something. That's a big deal to them, right? When they're little, that makes it a big deal to you because you love your kids, right? Jesus loves you. And Jesus is saying, even if it seems like a little thing, you're having trouble at work. Jesus, I need some help. You're having trouble finding a job that you like. Pray to Jesus. You're having trouble with finances and you're, you're stressing about some of these things. You're having trouble finding friends. As I talk to a lot of younger people, I mean, they move to a suburban area and you're not hanging out at the bars and meeting people. I mean, it's, you're having trouble. God, put some people in my life. You're having trouble just kind of taking a step forward and you're having trouble with bullies at school. You're having trouble just with some assignment. You're having trouble feeling stressed. You're having trouble figuring out where do you go to school. You're having trouble figuring out, like, what should I do? Just this next step. I'm not worried about, like, what I'm going to be in the future. I just, God, I just need some help now because I'm a little depressed and I want to I see where you are. Jesus says, I love you. I'm your friend, and I want to help. We see that from this miracle. He could do anything he wanted, and he chooses to save a reputation. Martin Luther, um, when he describes, uh, one more, uh, Martin Luther describes, did that jump one? Okay. Martin Luther, when he describes the Eighth Commandment, and um, the Eighth Commandment is put the best, uh, uh, do not um, speak falsely against your neighbor. And like, what does this even mean? This is how he describes it. It uses he's instead of he or she because it's 500 years ago. But he says what this means. We should fear and love God that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him or give him a bad name, but defend him or her, we would say. Speak well of him and take his words and actions in the kindest possible way. Sometimes when you run into people, um, you're amazed to be in their presence. And sometimes when people make choices, it kind of reveals your own heart. I can't imagine having Jesus for brother because how often would that reveal your own heart? When everyone's like grabbing for food and then he is patient, you're like, hmm. You know, like when everyone's being mean or something, he is always kind. And the same thing happens to us as we talk about our own friendship to other people. We say Jesus is this amazing friend who loves you and is willing to do anything for you. And then suddenly you realize, what kind of friend have I been? So I think that's second takeaway. So you look at what kind of friend Jesus is, what kind of friend have you always been? Or mother or son or daughter? Have you always upheld someone's relationship? Have you always taken their words and actions in the kindest possible way? When someone starts talking about someone else, do you say, hey, I don't really want to talk about that? Or is the story interesting enough that you kind of want to hear how it plays out? Have you been the kind of friend that Jesus has been to you? Of course not. And we just lay our sins that was what makes Jesus so utterly remarkable, that we can cast every care on him and that we can come to him and we can lay these sins at his feet. And Aristotle talks about this. Um, they say if you want to know how to be a good friend, you just read Aristotle. I'd say read the Bible. But most people say you can learn anything you want to do to be about a friend. And he says this, that just to come from a different source, Aristotle said, if you could do the next one, it is true of the good man, you can click one more time because it'll put his name, uh, the, true of the good man, too, that he does many acts for the sake of his friends and his country, and if necessary, dies for them. Not only are we not that great at the little things about just upholding someone's reputation, to always look out for them, to always help, but it, now we see 
how wonderful it is that you have a Savior that says, I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm not just worried about your reputation. I'm willing to put my life on the line to save you. If you're feeling alone, if you're feeling alone this year, you're feeling like, hey, I do need to cast my cares on Christ. Thomas Akempis, I think, has a good way to put it as you talk about lost friends. When you have Christ, you are rich. He's enough. He'll provide everything you need so that you don't have to count on others without him. People change and fail. We've all experienced that. You can't depend on people. We've all experienced that. Those that are for you today may be against you tomorrow. We've all experienced that. They're as variable as the wind, but Christ is eternally faithful. So what's our takeaway? Jesus did this amazing miracle. He has the ability to help you. He is humble in the way that he does it. And he has compassion. He wants to do this. What a friend we have in Jesus who is looking out for all our best things, even our reputation and the little things that matter in our life. But he takes care of the biggest thing, that he's willing to go to a cross for you so that you have a forever relationship with him. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, when we look at how, what an amazing God you are, really we, um, we're humbled and embarrassed in a sense of the things that we have not been the kind of friend and follower of you that we could be or should be. Instead, um, we come to you on your mercy. Not only do you have the ability to help us, but you have compassion that says, I care about you and care about each one of us. Our littlest problems, you say, cast them on us. You'll take care of them, and we need to trust you in that. And, in our, and what motivates us is if you're going to take care of the biggest thing in our life, a problem of sin that is reconciled between us and God, we know that you're going to take care of these little things. Help us now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be the kind of friends that you have shown us to be to the people that you've so graciously put in our life. Amen.